today's read, Midnight and the Meaning of Love by Sister Soja, Part 2, Japan Story, Chapter 4, Harajuku. It was as though I were in another country, and it happened suddenly. Instead of calm and orderly passengers, the train was now packed with pumped-up youths. There were more teens than seats, and they sat and stood stuffed in at every angle, but somehow without touching. There were hands on every strap, fingernails from natural to nine inches long, and decorated with diamond dust, sculptured replicas of flower pots, and other objects that were strange to see on nails of every type, with color galore. When the train doors finally eased open and the feminine voice whispered, Harajuku, the young came pouring and popping out, spilling and squeezing onto the platform and pushing without touching down a slim tunnel. In Harajuku, the alleyways were narrow and packed with thousands of teens. The air smelled like sugar, vanilla and cream. Every few feet, an outdoor vendor was wrapping ice cream into soft, hot crepes and decorating them with fruit and confectioner's sugar. The narrow passageways were framed by small stores and signature shops, places to get name plates and earrings, fake necklaces and rings, t-shirts and ribbons, lace gloves and panties, sneakers and jean belts and pocketbooks, lotions and perfumes, socks and stockings, hats and umbrellas, boots, shoes and bicycles, as well as barbers and beauticians and piercing and tattoos and tans and anything else a teenager could want. The theme was too much. A pretty girl with long black hair wore over a hundred barrettes separated by one centimeter each. Instead of one headband, girls rocked two, three, four, Eyes were painted with patterns and purples and pinks, earmuffs in the spring, long boots with mini skirts, and real girls with fake furry cattails. There were no cops or controllers, no parents or babysitters, and no babies, just teens, and a few adults who owned the businesses that served teens. The crowd moved in waves, shoulder to shoulder, three across, hundreds headed north, and shoulder to shoulder, three across, hundreds headed south, all down the same narrow alleyway. But the bugged out thing was, none of that. It was the weird way the kids in the crowd were dressed. What's going on here? I asked Yasa. Everything, anything, she said casually. There were teenage girls dressed up like baby dolls with wigs and face makeup that I was sure was making them look less attractive than they knew. They wore mini skirts with layered lace beneath, making the skirts shoot out. They wore corsets and ribbons, no stockings with bare thighs and bare legs and some slight suggestion of butt cheeks exposed. There were chicks dressed as cartoon characters, vampires, birds, mice and cats, heroes, aliens, heroines. Is it Japanese Halloween? I asked. Nope, this is Harajuku. This is every day. Some of the kids dress up as their favorite characters from children's stories like Strawberry Shortcake, 
Alice in Wonderland, Little Bo Peep, and some from manga books and anime films like Hantoro and Naruto. Some are just doing their own thing. Like them, Chiasa pointed. There were three Japanese girls in black fishnet stockings and panties, wearing no skirt, no dress, and no pants. Around one of each of their thighs was a garter belt made of satin and lace. On the back of their panties were big red bows as though they were gifts given to the public. They had to be about 13, 14, or 15 years young. I I won't stay here, I told Chiasa. You can. The place where you'll be staying is in the nice section. It's called Omote Sando. We just need to keep walking. Hundreds of dark-eyed girls in high school uniforms swarmed around us. Their skirts were hiked up to their hips and blouse buttons open. I ran my hand over my Caesar cut. Omote Sando was all upscale boutiques and shops with the same crowd. I peeped three Syrian men grilling beef and chicken kebabs serving 59 nearly naked schoolgirls who lined up and waited patiently with pockets filled with money. Their dusty beige Syrian faces were covered in a sheen of sweat from the hot meat and heated grill. I knew they were fasting. I could tell. Many Muslims worship and restrain themselves quietly while watching others run amok. I didn't cast even an eye on these strange Japanese teenage dudes. The hostel was on Cat Street in an old mansion with Spanish architecture. Let me look around first, I told Chiasa as soon as we entered. She remained at the front desk while I explored. Habarigani, a guy passing by in the hallway called out to me. I stopped and turned, recognizing his Swahili greeting. My father said every black person everywhere in the world should learn Swahili. It's our common language, he told me. Peace, I told him. Haki, from Kenya, he extended his hand to me. Midnight, from New York, I countered. You just arrived, right? He asked, knowingly. Yeah. How long will you stay? One night, I responded, speculating that I'd bolt out on the bullet train at sunrise. Haki laughed a bit and said, There are guys here who came for one night and stayed for two years. Then he smiled and said, Brother, if you need anything, let me be your friend. I gave him a pound. One minute. How are the rooms? Do the room doors have locks on them? I asked, since that was much more important to me than the scenery. What kind of place doesn't have locks on the door? Aki laughed some. I heard the Japanese don't steal, I said, smiling at the stupidity of my comment. But Aki said, they don't. But everyone else does, so of course there are locks. You got it, I told him. Wait, my room is two doors down. Take a look inside for yourself. Haki unlocked his door with a metal slide key. He slid his door open. He looked completely settled there in the room. His books, 
stacked in piles like pancakes, his shirt flung over his chair and worn shoes forming a line across the wall, a bed, a desk, a lamp, and a closet. The basics, he said, but there is no real crime in Japan, and it's clean and comfortable. All right, good looking out, I told him, stepping out to leave. For 1,500 yen extra per night, you can get a room with a bigger window and a terrace. Me, I'm on a budget. Most of us college students are, was the last thing he said as I left. I saw three more guys walking in the same hallway and began to wonder if this was an all-male hostel. Over here, Chiasa called as she shot out of a side opening that led to the stairwell. We're on the second floor, room 202. I didn't check in yet, I told her as she climbed the stairs ahead of me. I kept my gaze on the marble steps. I did. I have a passport, and I paid the 6,000 yen. Besides, you don't like to give anyone your name and information. Anyway, she said in a serious tone, no laughter. I did the conversion swiftly. 6,000 yen, that's high for a hostel. I signed you up for tonight. That's why it sounds high. You can add on the rest of the nights if you like. I have a receipt. You can reimburse me for my my expenses on this mission, right? She reached the top stair and turned and looked down at me. Why not, is all I said. Chiasa got a room bigger than Haki's. There was one big window and a fire escape that Haki had called a terrace. I leaned out the window and saw plenty of people passing by. Shoppers, skaters, athletes, musicians, and some of those costume dress-up types. I pulled back inside and had to laugh at myself. What kind of place am I in? I'm a Muslim in the middle of a brothel with no walls that's in the middle of a nut house during Ramadan. I picked up the receiver on the desk phone, listening for a dial tone. What about this phone? Does it work? It does work, but you can only receive calls if you give them a credit card at the front desk. I don't have one on me, she said. She didn't ask if I did. But you can call from room to room in here. She handed me the room key and the small folded leaflet that came with it. I pulled it all the way open. In 10 different languages were the rules and benefit listings for hostile guests. I put it in the drawer. This is Naoko Nakamura's current photo, she said, pulling a paper folded in fours out of her bag. She laid it on the desk and pointed. Where did you get it? I asked her as I eased in to take a close look. My eyes shot to the top of the page. It was dated today, yet Naoko Nakamura's appearance was not much older than the way he looked in an old picture in the book Sensei had gifted to me, with a head full of black hair, styled by a precise barber. He was a sharply dressed executive in a $1,000 tailored business suit. He stood taller than the two men pictured at his side. He didn't wear glasses like many Asian men, determination in his eyes. He didn't seem like the obvious villain. But we're not looking for him, right? Chiasa said, interrupting my thoughts. 
this is a love story, right? So where does he fit in? She stood up straight now. I thought to myself, Chiasa, quick like lightning. He doesn't, I said solemnly. Who are these guys standing beside him, I asked her. And what's going on in the news story? She leaned over to read the Japanese captions. Oh, this man is the vice president of Nakamura's Pan-Asian Corporation. His name is Bishaman Ikeda. Chiasa pulled her face up and her jaw dropped open. But I was a second ahead of her. Iwa Ikeda, we both said aloud. I locked in my game face. The girl you are looking for is Iwa Ikeda, and this is her father, Chiasa pronounced. Purposely, I did not correct her. It would be better for her if she did not know. As my anger was stirring up slowly, it had nothing to do with Chiasa. I would not allow her to get caught in a deadly mess. And what if she got questioned in a situation where this became a police matter? Yes, it would be better. The less she knew, the less she could tell. But I could tell. She wouldn't tell. Or maybe you are after Bishaman's wife, and she is named Iwa Ikeda. I never interfere with another man's wife, I told her, and her light laugh and suspicion evaporated. Seeing that the only television here in the Harajuku hostel was in an open area lounge, I asked Chiasa, if your grandfather agrees, could we go by your house and view the footage? Does he have a VCR? It's mine. I have to ask if I can have you over or not, but my grandfather knows that I'm a businesswoman. He wouldn't restrict a great client, she said with her brand of calm excitement and eagerness. Let's move then. I gotta pick up my luggage from over there anyway. On the walk over to Yoyogi, which was next door to Harajuku, my curiosity intensified. I got Chiasa to translate the newspaper article and sum it up for me in English. It's announcing Nakamura's trip to Singapore this weekend, which is his first stop on his Asian corporate tour. I stopped. Would he take my wife across the continent with him? Or would he leave her at home? Where is her home? Is it Tokyo or is it Kyoto? Were Iwa and Akimi being heavily supervised right now and simply waiting for their fathers to leave on the trip so they could contact me? Then Akimi would just pick up the phone when I called Iwa and say, take me back to New York. I want to go home with you. I want to see Uma. What ifs were choking me. The thought battle was fucking up my head. The other voice in my head said only two words, take action.